Amen. Hey, once again, we're in our exciting study, World Religions, Cults, and the Occult. We are on the number 10 sign, and that has to do with what, John? Seventh-day Adventist. That's right. Give it up for John. He's doing really good tonight. But as you turn there in your workbooks, in fact, does anybody need a workbook tonight? Because there's actually, I see one back there on the chair in the corner, maybe a couple. So if you need one, let's demonstrate our Christianity. And if anybody needs one, just raise your hand and we'll see about getting you one. But as we turn in the workbooks there on that issue, Seventh-day Adventist. And again, as we saw before in the study, I call this kind of like a sleeper cult, if you will. This one kind of gets underneath the door, so to speak. And a lot of Christians assume that this is the same thing as you and I. Uh, Christianity, evangelical Christianity, and it's not at all. And we're going to get even more deeper into that uh, tonight. But we've already seen what does it define a cult. We've already dealt with that secularly, biblically. We also took a lot that we need to check our hearts. Why are we studying this? It's not to win a debate. It's not to smash them into the ground. It's to love them to Jesus Christ. The truth will set you free. And we need to love them enough to tell them the truth so they can be set free. Because again, it's not just apples and oranges that I like cow and well, you guys are doomed because you like chicken, but no, that's not that. No, it's just, this is serious stuff. This is heaven, this is hell, and you don't want to get that wrong, right? So we need to love them enough to tell them the truth. Now, flipping on to the second page, the last two times we dealt with the history of the Seventh-day Adventists, and we saw it started with a guy named William Miller, and it wasn't just a William Miller issue. He was a what? He was a date setter, okay? Nothing wrong with studying Bible prophecy. You need to study Bible prophecy. One third of the Bible deals directly or indirectly with Bible prophecy. But what did he do? He violated the biblical rule. He tried to set a date. He got it wrong. Of course, it came and went as we saw before, and then he had to adjust it. No, this is the new date. Got that wrong. Got it wrong three times. Now, to William Miller's credit, he admitted that he got it wrong and he should have never done that to whatever. But what was the problem? The people didn't want to let it go. Right? It was called the Great Disappointment, and as we saw last time, it spawned a whole bunch of other cults. If you guys remember all that exciting artwork I came up with and did the timeline trail of all the different cults and subcults and sects and all that stuff, little uh, miniature uh, spinoffs, okay, from this one guy who set a date. Okay? And out of that, one of the major ones, of course, is the Seventh-day Adventist. Now, where we're at tonight uh, is we're going to get into the three linchpins, okay, after this, okay, and we're going to see a guy named Joseph Bates, okay, Joseph Bates, and then you're going to see another guy, okay, James White, and he marries a lady named Ellen, and of course, when you get married, what happens? Her name changes. That's right, Mike, you guys just found that out, didn't you, Carla? The last name changes, Ellen White, okay, these are the three big, if you will, to use the term, linchpins that gave birth to the Seventh-day Adventist movement officially. So that's what we're going to get into now. Now, halfway down on the page there, on page number two in our notes, it says, on the morning following the great disappointment. What was the great disappointment? Do you remember that? That's their term that they used to what? The guy set a date and he got it wrong. He got it wrong again. He got it wrong a third time. And so guess what? <laughs> right? Now, if they would have stopped there, it would have been fine. And he said, oh man, I repent. I'll never do that again. I shouldn't violate scripture. Very applicable to what's going on today. Okay, but they didn't. They called it the great disappointment. They should have said, this is the great error, and we stop. Well, they didn't. They were so disappointed, they didn't repent, and they said, we got to keep this thing going. So that's what it is. So on the morning of that great disappointment, October 22nd, 1844, a guy named Hiram Edson claimed to have seen a vision. Uh-oh, what's the problem with that? What did you just do, right? You just went outside what? The scripture, right? You went outside the realm of Scripture. Anytime you do that, guess what's going to happen? 
false teaching, false teacher, I don't care what it is, it's all based on your experience, okay, and that's what it is. So he had, of course, the Bible would say, you shouldn't have done that in the first place, great disappointment, setting a date. But no, so what do you do? I submit to the authority of the Bible. I had a vision. God spoke to me and all that stuff, okay? That's the danger. So that's what he did. So he had a vision, and here's what his supposed vision told him, right? He said that he saw Jesus standing at the altar of heaven and concluded that Miller had been right about the time, but wrong about the place, right? You can't admit you're wrong, so you got to come up with something, and here comes the vision card, right? And so he was wrong about the place. And they, he said that, no, no, here's what the vision told him. Jesus' return was not on earth, okay? Something did take place, but it wasn't on earth, but a move into the heavenly sanctuary as defined by Hebrews 8, 1 through 2, which says this. Now, the main point is what has been said uh, is this. We have such a high priest, obviously Jesus, who uh, has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Okay, so he said, and that's really what it is. And uh, uh, the, the, Jesus didn't come to the earth. What he did is he moved into, and according to their date, the 1844 date, right? He, this is when he, he moved into this heavenly sanctuary. What? When did Jesus go into the heavenly sanctuary? After his ascension, let me just give you one verse. Open your Bible, to Ephesians chapter 6, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, and let's take a look there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and this one verse, Paul talks about this m- multiple times, so let me just give you one verse, because we're probably going to get into this later, because this whole idea that Jesus, they couldn't admit that the date was wrong, they had to keep it going, they said, no, it was right, it's just Jesus didn't move to the earth down here, he's moving up in heaven. And they cherry-picked this verse. And that's where they spin out some of this stuff called the investigative judgment, that now he's up there, and now they're looking at our works in order who's going to get to heaven, which is not the gospel. Hello. Okay. But let's take a look at just one uh, example here, that uh, when Jesus rose again from the grave, where did he go? Okay. And so what we're talking about here in Hebrews is a past event, not something that took place in 1844. Right? So Ephesians chapter 1, go down there to verse uh, 20. Verse 20, and it says this, which he exerted, it's talking about the power, God's mighty power, working his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and what? He floated around the universe until 1844. Oh, I'm sorry, wrong translation, right? And what? And what? He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. So when Jesus ascended, right, from the grave, he goes and he sits at the right hand of the Father. The scriptures really replete about that. But they cherry-picked the verse. They couldn't admit that they're wrong. They had to keep it going because historically, this was a huge movement. I mean, a ton of people, especially for back in that day, without a lot of communication devices we have to, quote, get a false teaching out, unfortunately. Uh, they snookered a whole bunch of people. Well, they didn't want to let it go. Right? So they cherry-picked that verse. So, so that's that guy. So, so basically, the great disappointment, you think, oh, whew, boy, we learned a lesson. We'll never do that again. We submit to the Scripture. No. This guy comes and has a vision. Now, that influenced a couple other people. Right? And the first one there is that Joseph Bates guy, as you can see in your notes. He was a retired sea captain and a convert to Millerism. Again, what's Millerism? The guy who said, nothing wrong with studying about Bible prophecy. Nothing wrong about getting to the return of Christ. Christ can come back and get us today with the rapture. Okay, that's exciting. We, we need to long for his appearing. What's the problem? He set a date, right? So Millerism, so he, he converted to that. He fell for the date setter, right? 
And he began to promote the idea that Jesus was moving into this heavenly sanctuary thing, right? Because you've got to keep this thing going somehow, right? So he published a pamphlet, and guess who that influenced? James White, okay, who's the husband of uh, Ellen White, okay, uh, the three linchpins here. And these three were the driving force behind the Seventh-day Adventist Church, SDA for short, or you could also... Maybe Seventh-day Adventist SDA, or it could be setting dates again. I don't know. Take your pick. Uh, but anyway, so uh, SDA reports that uh, Ellen White, guess what she has? <clears throat> so not only that one guy, he got a supposed vision. He went outside the Scripture. You got to keep this thing going. Don't submit to the Scripture. Here comes Ellen. What's she do? She's keeping the same methodology going. Right? Don't listen to the Scripture. So that she has visions. And that wasn't just that she had these supposed visions. Wait till you hear. Uh... Not just what they were, but what she did when these things supposedly occurred. Doesn't sound like it's from God to me. But anyway, so she has these visions, okay, but they say that these are what they build their doctrine off of, a lot of their teaching, okay? But uh, so she supposedly has these visions, and, and from an early age, though, including shortly after the Great Disappointment, okay? So she got hit, and I'm not making this up, we'll see this in a little bit. She got hit in the head with a rock, knocked her out big time. She was out for a long time. Right? And couldn't even finish the third grade and whatever. And so she has visions and there was something weird going on with all due respect. Okay? But anyway, so she not only has these supposed visions, but she has hers right after the great disappointment. And then White claimed to see a vision, there it is again, of a narrow path where an angel, well, hey, if an angel comes, it's got to be from God. What's the scripture say? We've been studying this in our spiritual warfare study on Sundays. Who masquerades as an angel of light? Hey, just because he comes up and you got goosebumps on top of your goosebumps and it sounds good, smells good, looks good, I cried, that means from God. Satan masquerades, uh, even as an angel of light. So she sees this angel, and that angel was what? Of course, guiding guess who? The Adventist, right? What we, who's our guide? Our guide is the Holy Spirit, God. And how, how do we know what direction, where to go? Here it is, the safeguard, once again, the Bible. Not a vision, right? Not a feeling, okay? Not a supposed angel, right? But subsequent visions, notice what's going on here, over and over again. The one guy starts it off, he kept it going with a vision. Here comes Ellen G. White and what she had, visions, over and over and over again. So that's what they're relying upon, not the word of God from this lady. So she's got all these subsequent visions, resulted in various interpretations, including, listen, admonitions. Is your big word there. Your big word there, admonitions. Against what? Sunday worship, are you telling me? And you know what these supposed angels or whatever supposedly told her? Right? Here's a proof, one proof they're not from God because it's not scriptural. Right? And so holy angels from God don't lie. Satan's workers, the demons, they lie. They lie. Okay? But Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. What? Yeah, we'll see in a little bit. It's okay. So uh, that's what they say. say. As of 2005, though, after that's the roots, the SDA had 17 million baptized members worldwide. It's one of the fastest growing organizations, primarily due to increases in where? Third world membership. That's sad. Where do a lot of the word of faith false teachers, the Kenneth Copelands and the likes, uh, you, know, you know, name it and claim it, uh, blab it and grab it, and you get so seed to my ministry and you'll get a thousand fold, you know, all that kind of stuff. Where's that exploding? Third world countries, they don't know better. They're being ripped off. They always rip off the poor. It's, it's like a double sin uh, in itself. But so these guys are also spreading there. They don't know, right? And so they get pulled into it. Now, it now operates in 209 out of the 232 countries, regions recognized by the United Nations. So I want to tear into this with this uh, three big linchpins here 
history, and hopefully we can cover that uh, tonight. And then we're going to finally get into, more specifically, I'm peppering you with some of them, okay, into their false teachings. Why are these guys not evangelical Christianity at all? Okay, but let's take a look at that. Now, again, and that sounds, and I want to, this is where we left off last time, Okay, but I just want to give you a little smattering because, again, we're already getting flack from people saying, but I know Seventh-day Adventists, and they're great people, and they're Christians like us, and hey, I don't know their heart, right? Maybe somebody got saved in spite of the false teaching, right? I hear stories that some people actually get saved at a Benny Hinn thing. Doesn't mean Benny Hinn's right, right? Okay, so, but that you don't take one rare occurrence and then say everything's got to be, it's not logical, little biblical, okay? But let me just give you some, just a smattering of just some of the differences. There's no way you could say these guys are the same as you and I, the evangelical biblical Christian. They deny the immortality of the soul. They deny the eter- eternality of hell. They say our sins will ultimately ultimately be placed on Satan. They say just like Jehovah's Witnesses, which remember they influenced the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Charles Taze Russell, that Jesus is the My- uh, Michael the Archangel uh, that you have to worship on Saturday, not Sunday. October 22nd, that's when Jesus entered into a second phase of his atoning work, the moving into the heavenly sanctuary thing. Excuse me. He atoned what? once for all and sat down. Okay, the scripture teaches the investigative judgment. Again, that it's going to be based on your works, whether you get there. Uh, the dead do not exist anymore. They believe in soul sleep. Uh, they believe that the wicked are annihilated, and they think that Ellen G. White is a messenger from God who has the, quote, spirit of prophecy, and that's what they rely upon. Now, is that just like you and I? That's not just missing the mark from what the Bible teaches, what you and I hold fast to on a couple things. It's a multitude of things, and that's not all of them. So I say that again as we continue to journey into this. Hey, it's not me. Other researchers, do the homework yourself. This is not evangelical Christianity at all. Okay? So let's take a look at this first guy. This is Joseph Bates, the first of the three uh, kingpins, if you will. Uh, he was an American seaman, okay? And uh, he was also a revivalist minister. Uh, he was a co-founder, okay, with uh, the whites here, with Seventh-day Adventists, specifically Sabbatarian Adventism, later Seventh-day Adventist, but that's the big crux is they worship on Saturday, okay? And uh, if you don't, you're in big trouble according to them. It evolved into the Seventh-day Adventist church, okay? He is credited with the one convincing James White and Ellen White, okay, on the validity of the Seventh-day Sabbath, right? So he not only worked with them to create this, but specifically that you have to worship on Saturday, he convinced them to, to go along with it. Now, he was influenced by another guy. I'll get to that in a second. But this guy was born in Massachusetts. And again, he was a seaman. He got into sailing as a career. And during one of his voyages, he read a copy of the Bible that his wife packed for him, okay, on the boat. And he experienced a conversion. Did he really get saved? I don't know. But, you know, that term can be used loosely, right? Some people say, I converted to the Baptist church. Didn't mean you got saved. Might become a member. So that conversion term... Uh, I don't know. So anyway, so in 1839, he accepted the teachings of William Miller that Jesus was coming soon. Yes, Jesus is coming soon, but it wasn't just that he was coming soon. He set a date. So he was one of the many multitude, tens of thousands of people back in that day who got sucked up into this guy setting a date, right? This Joseph Bates guy. Now, uh, after October 22nd, 1844, the great disappointment should have been the great repentance. And let's move on, get back to the Bible, but it wasn't. Right? Bates sought the meaning of the great disappointment, and that's when he began to accept that, oh no, oh no, we have to worship 
on Saturday. Now, again, this is the guy who influenced the whites who together created this. Now, this guy, Joseph Bates, he got that idea from another guy that you have to worship on Saturday from a guy named uh, T.M. Preble, Preble, however you pronounce his name, right? And he was a free will Baptist minister. And if I recall right, free will Baptists believe that you can lose your salvation. That's not true, okay? Uh, But he was also a Millerite preacher. So this is another guy who got sucked into the date setting of the day with William Miller, right? The major uh, uh, swelling of people. Now, when he started getting into the date setting under William Miller, he got excommunicated from the Free Will Baptist Church, okay? But um, he started around that same time of the 1844 date, he started to propagate that no, no, and apparently, I don't know, he's got secret knowledge, all that thing that seems to go on in this crowd, right? That you have to worship on Saturday, not Sunday. He produced this tract, okay, in 1845 after the Great Disappointment. And it was called Showing That the Seventh Day Should Be Observed as the Sabbath, okay? And this is what led to this guy picking it up, okay? So all these guys are involved in this whole date-setting crowd. So this guy gets some sort of knowledge base, whatever, and he says, no, 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 we've had it all wrong. You've got to worship on Saturday. You can't worship on Sunday. He influences him. He influences them. And then they create that, and they still do it today. Right? So you see the trail there? Now, this is what's interesting. Remember we saw with the whole date setting thing? He tried it three different times, okay, but he got it wrong. But to his credit, William Miller what? Man, I blew it. I shouldn't have done it. And he repented. And he tried for the last five years of his life okay, after that uh, great disappointment to pull people around, but it was too late. Cats out of the bag, these people, go, they don't want to stop, and they're just, a whole movement started, unfortunately. All right, well, same thing happened with this guy. This is what was interesting. Two years later, after this guy writes this track that influences this guy, who influences the whites, which holds still today with the Seventh-day Adventists, you got to worship on Saturday. Listen, after he wrote that, uh, he repudiated that. He admitted he was wrong. In fact, so much so that he wrote a couple other things against it, uh, against the Seventh-day Sabbath belief that you got to worship on Saturday. Uh, he wrote a book called The World's Crisis and, and, uh, and another one, uh, First Day Sabbath. Okay, and so, but again, it's too late. Apparently, he influenced this guy. He didn't give it up. He influenced the whites and is still there today. So it's interesting, two for two. This guy said a date, man, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said it, sorry. But people didn't want to listen. You listened to you when you did the false, but they didn't want to listen to the truth. This guy says, oh, we've got to worship on Saturday. Sunday's wrong. Oh, and they, people fell for it. And he says, oh, man, two years later, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. He tried to get, it's too late. They kept it. Okay, so that's that little trail. So Joseph Bates also, he became known, this guy. So he gets it from this Preble guy. He gets it to it, even though he says, man, I was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. He keeps it going, and he won't, this guy won't let go. And again, he influenced the whites. But listen to this. He became known as the apostle of the Sabbath. I mean, this was one big thing. I'm telling you, you've got to worship on Saturday, you know, all that stuff. And uh, he published a a thing called the Seventh-day Sabbath, a perpetual sign, right? So he was also a a supporter of the whites and and that they believed that Ellen G. White, there's something special about her because she keeps having these visions, right? So he was a big believer in all that. Uh, as well. Uh, he was active with the whites, James and Ellen, and they would do uh, Bible conferences uh, during this time, post-1844, for several years, known as the Sabbath and Sanctuary Conferences. Why do you think they called it that? 
because spinning out of this date setting, what was two false teachings quickly coming out already, and they ain't done, unfortunately, okay, with uh, the false teachings. What was the big thing? Well, in order to keep the light going, what they do? They said Jesus moved into the heavenly sanctuary, right? So, right? And then they got influenced by this guy, and, you know, just... Yeah, and that's why I said, a lot of cults, what they do, we saw this last time with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's almost like they pick stuff. It's not just legalistic. It's not just works-based. And anytime you get works-based, you get legalism, right? But they always like to pick these little things to make them look special, like only us don't celebrate birthdays, or we're the only ones, right? And same thing, well, we believe that Jesus, we weren't wrong. He just moved in the sanctuary. No, oh, and we worship on the true day, Saturday. You know, so, that's, so that's why they called them the Sabbath and Sanctuary Conferences, because that's two of the big false teachings that were already coming out of this, right? Now, what's interesting is we're going to see today, if we get that far in the video clip, they still do it today. One of their major ways they suck people into the Seventh-day Adventist movement is with conferences. Now, they're very slick about it, because they do not tell you in print who in the world is hosting this conference. Now, there's nothing wrong, as we said. We've studied Bible prophecy a lot. And you have to because, again, one-third of the Bible deals directly or indirectly with prophecy. So you've got to hit it sometime if you're being honest with the whole of Scripture. Nothing wrong with that. But they seduce you in. They pull you in. They slowly weed you in. Then towards the end of the conference, they drop the bomb on you. If you worship on Sunday, if you leave here after all that you know, and you go back to worship on Sunday, the mark of the beast, ah! And they suck people into that. But if you're so proud of your thing, then why are you doing it with such trickery and you don't tell people who you are? I mean, you know, they don't tell you in print. A little, little trickery. So, so at the very outset, they're relying on these Bible conferences to pull people in. They're still doing the same thing uh, today. So anyway, so he supports this development. So they all kind of get together and they formulate the Seventh-day Adventists. Now, another little thing, because you're going to see with Seventh-day Adventists that they're still hung up, not just on, because again, cults have their little identity things and legalism. Okay, so not only they have that, oh, no, we weren't wrong. Jesus uh, moved in the sanctuary thing. And we'll get into that in much greater detail later. Oh, no, no, we only worship on the Sabbath. Another thing that they do is they're hung up on the dietary, the Jewish dietary laws. Okay, and they're big on food and health. Now, a lot of, there's like, they got universities, Andrews University, Loma Linda University, a lot of hospitals, right? And, and, and uh, uh, they, they uh, have a front out there like, we're just into eating right and healthy. And everybody wants to do that, right? How many times are you going to say it? Uh, if you want to exercise, go for it. I'm personally trying to quit, right? I just, I'm allergic to it or something. I don't know what the thing is. Right? And everybody just makes a big deal about it. John is getting shape, getting shape, getting shape, getting shape. How many times are you going to say it? Round is a shape, mission accomplished, right? So I'm not going to do it. But anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> they, they give the impression that we're just out for eating right, healthy, clean, Christian living. And we're, it's, it's, like, it's like the conferences, this whole healthy living, this hospital and, and eating right and vegetarian lifestyle. Oh, is that a hot topic today? And, and all this stuff. And we, we're just trying to help. No, they're sucking you into the Seventh-day Adventism, the legalism. Okay. But anyway, so a lot of it started with this Joseph Bates guy. Okay, understand the root, you understand what's going on today, where it all came from. Now listen to this, in his everyday life as a sailor, he noticed the intemperance of the sailors, okay, obviously kind of a rough crowd, okay, uh, and resulting side effects. Now, many of these problems came from poor rations, okay, but many were the result of the overindulgence of the men, right? Okay, so he became this Joseph Bates guy who worked with the whites who created the Seventh-day Adventists, Okay, who are now into legalism with the dietary laws, amongst other things. He became a, quote, champion of health reform. 
right, that you needed to abstain from all alcohol, tobacco, and even caffeine, and he even became a vegetarian, okay, as well. Now, what's interesting, this was cool, this was like CSI this week, right, it's kind of fun, the officer, and uh, so these guys influence another person, okay, and his last name is Kellogg's, makers of fine breakfast cereal. Did you have any idea that this guy was a Seventh-day Adventist? And wait to hear why he really produced the whole cereal movement. Okay, let's get into that. So, so these, these guys, they influenced a guy named John Harvey Kellogg, and as we'll see in a minute, he had Bigham Bucks. Okay, and guess who he supported? These guys. And so he, with his finances, helped them to really get going. We'll get to that in a second. So he started this uh, with his brother, okay? He started the Sanitas Food Company, later called the Kellogg Company, to market a, quote, healthy breakfast cereal, right? Up until this point, what we know as cereal today, that was a, wasn't a known thing, okay? So this is where the cereal movement uh, uh, made. And again, wait till you hear what he really wanted to do with this stuff and what the purpose was. It's going to be a real cereal killer. I had to say that. I had to say it. You knew it was coming, but let's move on. So anyway, <laughs> so, so they start this thing, and you get this. This is cool. One of the guys who went to this guy's called, it's a sanitarium, right, that they had, and uh, with Kellogg. It's supposed to be like a health resort, eat right. All, you know, it's the seven, whole seven-day Adventist thing. They still today pull people in. There was another guy that was one of his patients, and he spun off with his own company, and that was a guy named C.W. Post. Post cereal. So another cereal guy spun off from that. And basically with that and some other entities, uh, you get General Mills and other stuff. And that started the cereal movement. But this guy is Seventh-day Adventist. And believe you me, it wasn't just about making kids happy. It was sugar smacks. <laughs> it's way more than that. All right, so let's get into this Kellogg guy. Uh, Kellogg was the director of what was called the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. And it was founded by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, right? Okay, and uh, so they, they own that thing, right? He headed it up. He headed it up. It was originally called the Western Health Reform Institute, okay? And it's supposed to just be about healthy living, eating, and all that stuff. Uh, he became the superintendent of the place, Mr. Kellogg, with his brother, W.K. Kellogg. He was the bookkeeper of the place. And uh, they took the word sanatorium back then because it was uh, defined a health resort for invalid soldiers, Okay, uh, Kellogg states that the number of the patients at this sanitarium, torium, whatever, grew to 106 in 1866 to 7,006, like a small little town, right, in the year 1906 and expanded to a 14-story tower, right? So it's kind of supposed to be like a health, health resort, right? And it was owned again by the Seventh-day Adventists, okay? But it was, again, the, his Adventist beliefs uh, that he uh, created what he did. Now, listen to what he created. Kellogg explored the various treatments for patients, right, including diet reforms, uh, frequent enemas, okay, and things of that nature. And he was really big on a diet with an emphasis on whole grains, fiber-rich foods, and nuts. You eat enough of that? Probably won't need the other thing. We'll just leave it to that. But that's part of this whole, you got to, how many guys think that it was, with all due respect, and maybe you like them, I don't know. And uh, remember grape nuts? Weren't you convinced like me that like, somebody scraped this out of the, the driveway? This is gravel nuts. This is called gravel nuts, right? <laughs> right? But there's, a, what's this, all this brand stuff? What do you mean brand? All this, got to eat brand. brand, brand. 
This is this. Right? But wait till you hear the reason why they pushed it. Right? But anyway, many of the vegetarian foods that he developed and offered to his patients were marketed. Okay? And one of the things that he eventually came up with was the, quote, breakfast cereal. And the big one, the big one that basically started the craze was called cornflakes. That was from Mr. Kellogg. That was his big breakthrough for healthy living, right? And, uh, and keeping you moving or something like that. Okay, but that was the big hit. And in fact, if you look today, they're still big on this oat brand fiber thing or whatever. And I'm just going to rip through a few of them. Uh, they, these are all from Kellogg's, right? Kellogg's, they come out with uh, all brand, uh, Raisin Crisp. Uh, I, listen to this one, Buckwheat and Maple. Buckwheat and Maple. A Concentrate. Uh, I bought that one time. I never got into the box. I, cu- I couldn't. I just. I was just staring at that box the whole time. Concentrate. Let's move on. Uh, corn pops, corn flakes, corn soya, corn snaps, crackling oat bran, uh, fruit and fiber, uh, good friends cereal, which is a fiber cereal, granola cereal, mucilix, uh, Nutrigrain, uh, oat bake. Mmm, gotta get me a bowl of oat bake. Right, with that. Uh, pop grain cereal, puffa puffa rice. I'm not making that one up. Uh, raisin bran, raisin squares, raisin wheats, rice krispies, special K, okay? And uh, it all sounds great, okay? But this is what started the cereal craze, but there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. So let's take a look at this video. Medicine in the mid 19th century was based on adjusting the bodily fluids. Bleeding was a, uh, well, you know, you had too much body heat, you know, you just bleed off a pint of the stuff. If that didn't work, you try two pints. And then also, um, you could take medicines, often that can, in fact, generally contain both arsenic and mercury, and they would definitely flush out your system, fore and aft. <laughs> no rich person in the 19th century went to, a, went to a hospital. They had a physician come to them. Because without germ theory, you died in a hospital. Despite the public's fear of health institutions, in 1866, three years after it formed, the new Adventist Church opened the Western Health Reform Center in Battle Creek, Michigan. It became an instant success because so few people were dying. Soon, a brilliant young surgeon, John Harvey Kellogg, whose medical education was sponsored by Ellen White, became director. Kellogg changed the name to the Battle Creek Sanitarium and over the next half century built an empire around the evolving Adventist approach to medicine and healthy living. Kellogg is the man who chose the word sanitarium because what he wanted is a place where people come to learn how to get healthy and to stay healthy. Through the years, Kellogg's reputation as an eccentric personality was only enhanced by his passion for new ways to harness nature for diet and health. He experimented with heat treatments and hydrotherapies. Scores of celebrities came to Battle Creek, including President William Howard Taft, King Edward, inventor Thomas Edison, pilot Amelia Earhart. Kellogg's sanitarium was now the largest health institution in the world. These rich people came because they wanted to feel better. Adventist sanitariums began springing up across the country. But when the Great Battle Creek Sanitarium burned to the ground in the early part of the 20th century, Kellogg wanted to rebuild it on an even grander scale. A rift 
developed between the powerful Kellogg and church leaders. In the end, John Harvey Kellogg, who patented a process for making peanut butter, is credited with helping to inspire a national exercise movement, and who with his brother created a name synonymous with the breakfast food industry, broke from the church, but not before helping to put the Adventist approach to health and the creation of unique health facilities on the map. Well, gee, that sounds innocuous. I mean, that, these guys are just here about health and trying to help us eat right and uh, a lot more uh, than going on than that. Again, what they don't tell you is the Seventh-day Adventists, a lot of these healthy, supposed healthy living thing, it's based on their legalistic dietary laws, a false teaching with that. Uh, number one, also, um, they didn't want you to get aroused. They have their own version of beliefs on uh, sex and sexuality, uh, including celibacy. Now, let me do the serial killer for you. Why did he come up with cornflakes? And this is on historical record. Kellogg came up with cornflakes that were invented as a part of his health regimen to prevent arousal. And Kellogg's belief was that bland foods such as these would decrease or prevent excitement or arousal. Gets worse. Uh, he was an advocate of sexual abstinence, okay, and he devoted large amounts of his educational and medical work to the discouraging of sexuality on the basis of what he was being taught by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's why he came up with the cereal, right? Now, Kellogg's, this is crazy. I'm not making this up. This is wild. This is what I said at CSI this week. This was cool, right? Kellogg was an adherent also to the teachings of a guy named Sylvester Graham, you're right, who inspired the invention of the graham cracker and advocating keeping the diet plain to prevent sexual arousal. So in my notes, just a crone theory, I'm not going to say thus say the Lord, that's why uh, somebody invented the s'mores, okay, to counteract that false teaching. <laughs> it's, are you kidding me? Isn't this crazy, right? John Harvey Kellogg, now he believed this, and that's why he developed the whole cereal movement and his food, and he was with the graham cracker guy and all this stuff, right? This is preventing you from ever getting excited, right? John Harvey Kellogg married Ella Eaton, and he followed the Adventist views in favor of celibacy, and the couple actually maintained separate bedrooms and did not have any biological children. Now, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4. Now, it's kind of interesting. You put these two things together. And the Bible says something's going to happen with some false teachers in the last days, right? But let's take a look at that real quick. 1 Timothy 4. If you find 2 Timothy, hang on left. You're getting there. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3. We'll just take a look at this. And just based on all what we just saw and heard, right, what's going on here? The Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, the last days, what's going to happen, right? Uh, some will abandon the faith, right? And they're going to follow deceiving spirits, things taught by who? Demons, they're going to listen to demons. And wait till you hear again what happened during Ellen G. White's visions. And if it's not demonic stuff, I don't know what is. But anyway, we'll get to that in a second. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars. Remember the context, this is going to happen in the last days. When was this movement started? Mid-1800s. In the, in the span of the church history? Last days, right? right? Whose consciences have been seared as a hot iron. What do they do? They forbid people to marry and order them to what? to abstain from certain foods, etc., etc. So uh, they weren't abstaining from marriage, but it was blending into this movement with sexuality, and the whole thing why he created the cereals was to keep people from ever getting excited. Okay? But again, this comes from Seventh-day 
Adventists uh, believe, okay? The sanitarium was operated based on the church's health principles, the Seventh-day Adventists. And Adventists, they believe uh, in a vegetarian diet, abstination from alcohol, tobacco, and, of course, a regimen of exercise. But again, this is another way. Still to this day, they are major pushing, quote, medical missions. They establish hundreds of hospitals, medical centers, uh, clinics, sanitariums across the United States as well as the world. But again, it's almost like a false pseudo-front. Right? We're here to help you with health. What happens when you walk in? You get seduced into, guess what? So if you will, from a negative sense, it's like an evangelism tool, like what their Bible prophecy conferences. You say it's all about health, but no, you're trying to lead me into false teaching and the false teaching of legalism with the dietary laws and vegetarianism and all that stuff, etc. So Kellogg, of course, uh, he was the guy who was a promoter of Ellen G. White and James White, in fact, he was the one who pledged, quote, substantial amounts of money to uh, the Whites, okay, uh, to relocate there with him in Battle Creek, Michigan. So this guy basically was a financier uh, for the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, because Kellogg was well-to-do, okay? And, uh, and so also, Kellogg believed that the second of, uh, coming of Jesus Christ was imminent, and that the formal education of their children was therefore unnecessary. Well, so what's the balance in understanding Bible prophecy? Right? It seems like the church is in one spectrum or the other. They act like you don't need to study prophecy, and Jesus is never coming back, and there is no imminency that the rapture could happen today. That's wrong. Other people say, well, yeah, it could happen any today. Therefore, I don't need to get a job. I don't need to go work. In his case, I don't need to educate my children what's to use. I don't need to have children because... Who wants to have children if they're not saved? Then they go into the seven-year tribulation. Jehovah's Witnesses kind of do the same thing, right? So that's not your, your balance is, yeah, it could happen today, but I also got to prepare for this day as if it's still going to be a while. And it's like a railroad track. Don't get on just one rail. You're going to derail. Don't, you need to go on both at the same time, right? And that's your balancing point. He didn't have that apparently. Now, Ellen G. White described her husband's relationship with John Kellogg as, quote, closer than that of his own children. So these guys were tied to the hip. But the big thing is, this guy was the financier of these people, even to the point where he helped them to get their, uh, their ministry, if you will, materials out, uh, their, their uh, magazines and things of that nature. Uh, Kellogg died December 14, 1943, in Battle Creek, Michigan. He was buried at Oak Hill Cemetery there. And among others who were buried there at that cemetery with Kellogg, of course, his parents, his brother, and guess who? James White and Ellen White. Interesting, right? So that's kind of that, that movement. But let's get to that James White real quick, right? He's, again, the co-founder with his uh, wife, Ellen G. White. And uh, they uh, began to produce this periodical, again, with the help of the funding of Mr. Kellogg. Uh, it was called originally The Present Truth. Today they call it The Adventist Review, right? And this is in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, he plays a, a later part in also propagating their, quote, educational thing. And again, just like the education, you go there, guess what you're going to get influenced in? Just like with the medical issue, just like with the conferences, you're going to get pulled into that. And that, that's the, the colleges. Uh, he started what was called the Battle Creek College, which is now today called Andrews University. You may have heard of it. Loma Linda University is one of the more famous ones. That's Seventh-day Adventist. And there's a whole slug of them. But you need to read who you're getting involved with. Okay, and what are you promoting? So he was actually born fifth of nine children. He was a sickly child. He himself suffered from, quote, fits and seizures, right? He, uh, he had poor eyesight. He didn't get much of an education, and he was required to work on the family farm. You know what came to my head? 
Back to Mr. Miller. Maybe you should have stuck to corn. Plant corn. Remember that? It's just like, he didn't stay on the farm. Guess who his parents got influenced by? The Millerite movement. The setting date movement guy. So his parents got, so he got influenced to that from his parents, and he decides he's going to become a preacher, right? And uh, so it's, it, and it says, quote, however, White was met with angry mobs who, quote, hurled snowballs at him. Like I said, maybe the message was plant corn, right? <laughs> you know, whatever, wasn't doing too good. But anyway, it was during this time that he met a lady called Ellen G. Harmon, later to be uh, obviously white. They had four boys. Okay. He suffered from a stroke in 1865. He retires from ministry so he could quote live out his days peacefully. Uh, during the summer of 1881, he came down with a fever, was taken to the Battle Creek uh, Sanitarium. Uh, but despite the health efforts there, uh, he died uh, in August 6th of that year. Oh, and by the way, I don't have time to get into it, but that other place, as it said on the video, he experimented with things. Did you see that thing, that, that heat ray looking thing? And they were throwing water on people. They were also uh, used electrotherapy and some other strange things that they just experimented to improve your health, right? And things of that nature, as well as eating bland food so that, I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? Anyway, so Ellen G. White, well, and we'll wrap it up. Ellen G. White for tonight. Uh, her original name was Ellen Gould, in case you're wondering, what's the big G? It's always the big G, Ellen G. White. That's Gould, G-O-U-L-D. Ellen, G., uh, Ellen Gould Harmon was her maiden name. And, uh, of course, she's one of the big three linchpins. Now, uh, she reported her alleged visionary experiences to her fellow believers, and James White and early pioneers of this movement believed, oh, she's got the gift. I mean, she's, this has got to be from God, right? And, uh, uh, and that uh, these, this was nothing more than the biblical gift of prophecy. Really? Is that even in function for today? Open your Bibles real quick to Hebrews chapter 1, right? Hebrews chapter 1, how does God communicate to us today? Does he still give us visions? And, and, and really, if these things are really uh, from God, you know, if you got a, a so-called word from God or God gave you a prophecy to give to somebody that's applicable for today, and I always like to say, uh, as we turn there to Hebrews chapter 1, I always like to say, well, why aren't we writing a new New Testament? And this is really from God, isn't it, right? Or do we have the canon of Scripture before us and we're done? All that we need is right here. Well, that's what the Bible says. If you read the book of uh, Hebrews, right, the very first uh, chapter, uh, verse 1 there, says, in the past, God spoke to us what? He did, in the past. It is in the Bible. He spoke to our forefathers through the what? The prophets, many times in various ways. So yeah, that was God's methodology uh, at that time. But in these last days, who has he spoken us to? By his son. Where is the words that were spoken to the Old Testament prophets recorded for us? Old Testament. Where is the words that are spoken to us in the last days by the Son for us? New Testament. Guess what? We're done. That's what it was. That's it. So this continuing idea that God's given you a new word, a new thing. If it, first of all, if it was true, why aren't we having a new New Testament? But, of course, I would hope that nobody would ever even go down that route. But that's, in essence, what you're doing. See, you're going outside the Scripture, right? So they said that, no, no, she's, she's got the gift. And... Um, and uh, she uh, experienced all kinds of visions, but again, uh, she starts, along with the other guy, experiencing visions after the great disappointment, right? So they put their stock in. Now, let me give you uh, a little bit of description, and this is on historical record with the people around her, including her husband, what they would say happened to her when she went into these so-called visions. This is on record, okay? 
And again, she claimed to be this prophet, right? Oh, by the way, uh, she only had a third grade education. She said for years that she was unable to read. And then that's why she said, well, and that just proves that this has got to be a gift from God because look at how I can write. Well, that turned out to be a lie. It was discovered that she not only could read, but, quote, she plagiarized many other authors throughout much of her writings. Yeah, hundreds is right, Pastor Tom. Tons. And we might get into that later when we get into their, their version of the Bible, the clear word Bible. The only thing that's clear about it, it ain't the same Bible as ours because they insert her words into it with and say that it has the same authority as the Bible. But let me give you uh, some of these uh, uh, visions, okay, uh, that she had. First of all, they said that she had a, uh, and these are the people around her. They claimed that she very well could have had a complication of hysteria, epilepsy, uh, catalepsy, which is in a, your body goes into a trance-like state or is extremely rigid. And, and part of this started back when she got hit in the head uh, with a rock as an early girl, not making it up, Right? And, uh, but they also said that she very well could have had seizures and hallucinations. But again, here's how they describe when she would go into these visions. And again, this is where they base much of their false teachings, the Seventh-day Adventists, still to this day. This is what they lay stock in, is her experience outside the Bible. Listen to this. J.N. Lowborough, L-O-U-G-H-B-O-R-O-U-G-H, if you want to check it out yourself, uh, had seen White, Ellen White, envisioned 50 times since 1852, and her husband, James White, listed several physical characteristics, characteristics that marked the vision. So here's what was going on when she supposedly, this is supposed to be from God. And there's six, six of them. Number one, quote, in passing into vision, she gives three enrapturing shouts of glory, uh, which echo and re-echo. So I guess this was the early version of low-tech reverb. Glory, glory, glory. She didn't have a microphone. And then especially uh, the third, fainter but more thrilling than the first, the voice resembling that of uh, one of a quite of a distance from you and just going out of hearing. So when she's in this, she said, glory, glory, glory. That's how it started, but listen how it progressed. Quote, for a few seconds, she would swoon having no strength. Then she would be instantly filled with superhuman strength who also does that? When people get what? Possessed, scripturally, what's something they have? Super, and listen to what she did. Sometimes she would rise to her feet and she'd walk about the room. She frequently moved hands, arms, and head gestures that were free and graceful. But to whatever position she moved her hand or arm, it could not be hindered nor controlled even by the str strongest person. In 1845, she held her parents 18.5 pound family Bible in her outstretched left hand for a half an hour when she only weighed 80 pounds at that time. Where are you getting this supernatural? It's kind of strange. Number three, she did not breathe. This is their recording the record. She did not breathe during the entire period of a vision that ranged from 15 minutes to three hours. Yet her pulse beat regularly and her countenance remained pleasant as in a natural state. Number four, her eyes were always open without ever blinking, okay? Uh, her head was raised, looking upward with a pleasant expression, as if staring intently at some distant object. Several physicians at different times conducted tests to check her lack of breathing and other physi physical phenomena. Number five, 
She was utterly unconscious of everything transpiring around her and viewed herself as removed from this world as if in the presence of heavenly beings. Well, I'll give you that. There's something in that room. I don't think it's from God, right? And number five, listen, this is weird. When she came out of the vision, all seemed total darkness, whether in the daytime or well-lit room at night. She would exclaim with a long, and she's coming out of the vision now, uh, she would exclaim with a long-drawn sigh as she took her first natural breath, dark, D-A-R-K. Now, is that freaky or what? And then she was limp and strengthless. And this is supposed to be from God? I don't think so. Because it began to spawn. First of all, it's outside the scripture. No, 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 no. I mean, you should have stopped at date setting. You should have stopped with the legalistic Saturday Sabbath Jewish thing. You should have stopped with the Jewish dietary laws. Now you're outside the scripture with all this stuff. It spawns all kinds of false teaching. Right? Because if this is truly a movement of God, he's not going to contradict himself. He's not going to lie. Demons lie. And so let's close by watching just a little bit, and we'll get into this in greater detail later, of the multitude of false teachings that she got in her experiences during these visions. Let's take a look at this. Seventh-day Adventism today claims more than nine million followers around the world. With its appealing emphasis on biblical prophecy, healthy dieting, and education, the Seventh-day Adventist movement continues to grow at a remarkable rate. Their extraordinary expansion is all the more astounding when one considers its humble and obscure beginnings. Based around the teachings and philosophies of its 19th century founder, prophetess Ellen G. White, Seventh-day Adventism exhibits tremendous influence worldwide. Now, with thousands of churches located in more than 200 different countries, the organization's income exceeds $1.3 billion annually. In addition to its churches, Seventh-day Adventist holdings include a vast number of schools, bookstores, health food stores, television studios, universities, and medical facilities, such as the world-famous Loma Linda University Medical Center in California. Many new converts are initially contacted through their well-publicized prophecy seminars. These seminars are usually advertised without the Seventh-day Adventist name attached. People are often unaware of the Adventist sponsorship. In addition, they use their highly touted five-day stop-smoking classes and vegetarian cooking courses to proselytize as well. The Seventh-day Adventists also produce scores of high-quality radio and television specials each year in order to spread their message and attract new members. Although considered by many to be a mainstream Christian denomination, Seventh-day Adventism differs from evangelical Christianity in a number of pivotal theological areas. To determine the significance of these differences, one must examine the teachings of the late Seventh-day Adventist founder, Ellen G. White. Born on November 26, 1827, in Gorham, Maine, Ellen was hit in the head with a rock at the age of nine. She remained unconscious for three weeks, unable to attend school following the incident. Ellen's education ceased at the third grade level. Both her health and her emotions remained fragile as she grew older. She became Ellen White upon her marriage to another former Millerite believer, James White, in 1846. Because she claimed to have the spirit of prophecy, she came to be the visible, absolute authority figure for the initially small group of Adventist believers. I am presenting to you that which the Lord has presented to me. I do not write one article in the paper expressing merely my own ideas. 
They are what God has opened before me in vision, the precious rays of light shining from the throne. Her writings grew to be 17 times as large as the entire Bible. Her followers were to reference these 5,000 articles, 49 books, plus 55,000 manuscript pages she claimed to write and regard them as being as inspired as a Bible through Ellen White's pen of inspiration. To this day, official publications of the church have used her writings as the last word on doctrine. In the 27 points of fundamental beliefs, they state that the Bible is a source of authority, but they also say that her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth. They have, however, made her more embarrassing writings unavailable, locking them securely away in the White Estate vault. Mrs. White wrote on nearly every area of Christian life, including doctrine, diet, health, recreation, and marriage. Many of her writings were done from Elmshaven, her California home. She claimed an angel stood by her bed near this chair in her bedroom. They further believe that the three angels mentioned in the Bible book of Revelation carry three unique messages. The investigative judgment, the Saturday Sabbath, and Sunday worship being the mark of the beast. Mrs. White in a vision also claimed to have traveled complete with wings to various planets which were full of inhabitants. She reported meeting Enoch on a distant planet during one of her journeys. Other times, she saw angels using Golden Gate passes to go in and out of heaven. Some of her so-called visions reflected her own racist views. For example, she believed that certain races of people were the result of sexual relations between man and animal, which she referred to as an amalgamation. Despite the unbiblical nature of her visions, her followers continued to accept her as God's messenger and her writings as inspired as the Bible. Even to the point in their version of the Bible, as we'll see a little bit later, they actually insert her words into the scripture and they mesh it together. Why is there so much false teaching? That's just the tip of the iceberg. As you notice, what he said, they hide a lot of these things called in the Ellen G. White vault, right? They hide them away. Because you keep reading what she supposedly had, not only her so-called vision experience, I don't even think it's biblical, number one, because now you're outside the scripture. Number two, you take a look at historically what was going on. That don't sound like an experience from God, for me. And number three, we're just getting started. How many false teachings are birthed out of this lady and this movement that started with violating the word of God? You set a date, why'd you do it? And then they all started getting visions, and here comes all this legalistic false teaching that they're still propagating today. What's the lesson? Stick with the Bible, only the Bible, period, and you'll be fine. But Lord willing, next time we're going to start finally getting into that aspect, the teachings, and dare I say the false teachings of Seventh-day Adventism and all the areas that they get wrong, starting with the source of authority, but the nature and work of God, the Trinity, the person of Jesus Christ, man, and certainly salvation, and their version is a works-based gospel. It's not the same thing. That's clear as a bell. We'll get to that, Lord willing, uh, next time. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven, and that's because God is holy, 
and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you have ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, how many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest. We've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God. And you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn. We, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it. And a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins 
and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it and they can't earn it. If he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day, that you're still alive. God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.